I just met uh, Larry today, and I didn't get any real, real insights except for the fact that uh, he and I have about the same length of time of sobriety. Uh, and I don't think I'm going to say a whole lot anymore. One, one of his friends uh, made a statement to me, volunteered a statement that uh, he's really humble. <laughs> anyway, with that, uh, I'll give you Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I'll get the name of that person later about this humility of being humble or whatever, you know. You know, the book says, somewhere in there, it says we absolutely insist on enjoying life. And man, let me tell you, this is what it's all about. Not me being up here, but me being over at that hospitality room and visiting and meeting all these wonderful people here. And I would like to tell you all uh, that we really appreciate the invitation to be here. and we, We've enjoyed our fellowship here. And, you know, what better way to kick off a conference than to have Sterling up here last night talk about all that unswallowing and stuff like that, you know. <clears throat> then we move on up there this morning. And we have Garland. We're going to have to get him a tranquilizer, you know. He, he's so hyper, you know. And then this afternoon, old Kiz gets up here. And, you know, Kiz is... She's not here right now. She's been a great friend of ours for a long time. And and uh, I need to, should have told her a long time ago, you get in college and uh, you, you can play football. You don't have to worry about them damn grades she was talking about, you know. And then that uh, Al-Anon speaker. You know, I, I'm a firm believer. I'm a firm believer that this is a family disease. You know, the book of uh, Al-Anon, I hear him all the time reading about a family illness. But, you know, illness is not a, uh, a tough enough word, I believe, for this disease that we have and how it affects everybody in the family. You know, so many times we talk about this uh, affecting the family. We talk about genetically maybe coming down through the years or whatever. But that's not really what it's all about. The, the family illness is the active alcoholic and what he does to everybody's surroundings. And, uh, of course, I, I'm so fortunate tonight because I don't have to get up here and take my inventory. It's already taken about... Uh, one o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> but uh, for y'all that missed Peggy, before I get started here tonight, I do want to introduce y'all to Peggy Grantham, and I love her very dearly. Peggy, stand up. <laughs> and one other thing I, I'm going to say, and I, I should have, I wanted to wait until Ross got back, but all these buzzers out here, I want to tell y'all something about Ross. I talked to his sponsor. And, you know, he wasn't the way he is all his life either. I mean, he just got sober a few years back and got his life turned around. Matter of fact, when he was trying to get sober, he and his sponsor got down to do that third step. And they were going to do the third step prayer. And so he got down and he said, uh, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do as thou wilt. And God answered back and said, what an order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> I'm Larry Grantham, and I'm an alcoholic. It's by God's grace in this fellowship and this 12-step program of Alcoholic Anonymous that I'm sober tonight. And people like you in rooms such as this, and smaller rooms with MAA closed meetings, that's the reason I'm standing up here tonight. You know, I'm a native Mississippian. Now, I didn't even know what a native was. 
Finally, I, somebody told me, and said, uh, you're probably a native Mississippian. I said, what do you have to do to be a native Mississippian? And they said, well, you know, you got to be born in Mississippi, and Mississippi is composed of 82 counties, and you got to have gotten drunk in all 82 counties. So I, I'm a native Mississippian, and, you know, I grew up in a little small town outside of uh, Crystal Springs, Mississippi, and, uh, you know, when I was young, I... I realized that uh, I can't. Now, today, I realize I came from a tremendous family. I had a tremendous mother and dad, and and we were poor. There's no doubt about it. But we didn't have indoor plumbing, and we didn't have uh, uh, bathrooms in the house and running water. And, and I was really ashamed of the way I was raised. And I got five brothers and sisters. I got three older sisters, and, and uh, I got two younger brothers. And when everything got sober, you know, you want to look back and find out why you're an alcoholic. And, by then, but when I was trying to do this, my sponsor hadn't told me that if we needed to know why we were alcoholics, there would have been a chapter in the book called Why We're Alcoholics. So we don't need to know evidence. It's not in the book. But I wanted to find out. And I started reflecting back on my childhood, you know, as we all do. And finally, I did realize that we were real poor. And growing up, you know, I had to wear hand-me-down clothes to school. Well, that's not too bad, except I had three older sisters, you know. I, but that's probably not the reason I'm standing up here tonight. You know, really, I, I was ashamed of the way I was raised. I was ashamed of being out in that country and going to school in that little old city there and the people having running water and indoor plumbing. And, and I set about an early age. But, of course, you know, as most alcoholics, we go back and we look back and we see our character defects. And I had all those character defects Sterling talked about last night. I, I'd climb a tree to tell a lie <clears throat> when I could have stood on the ground and told the truth. You know, that's just the way I was. And I had a lot of other character defects. But... Some of them I can't hardly tell you about. I can tell you a story. I don't know how many of y'all have ever heard of Jerry Clower. He called himself the mouth of the South, and he tells tremendous stories. But he's not here tonight, so I'm going to tell his story. He talks about the time where out in the country in Mississippi, these two old dusty roads, you know, cross, and there'll always be some kind of little country store sitting there. So this, uh, well, he might have been from West Virginia, probably driving an electric 225 or Cadillac or Continental. He was buzzing down through Mississippi, and he hit that little, he saw that little country store there, and he decided to get him a soda pop. It was a hot July afternoon, and he stopped his car, and he went in there. Before he went in the store, he looked there, and there was a 10-year-old kid sitting in front of that store, just a rocking, you know, in a little rocking chair. He said, uh, he thought he'd have some fun with that kid, and he said, son... I bet you can't eat that whole watermelon. He pointed to a watermelon laying there on the front of that store about that big around. That kid looked at that man, looked at that watermelon. He said, I, I really don't know, mister. That, that's a big watermelon. So the man took out a $10 bill. And he said, son, I tell you what. I'll give you this $10 bill if you can eat that watermelon. That kid eyed that $10 bill and eyed that watermelon and eyed that man. He said, I don't know. That's a big watermelon. But if you'll wait right here, I'll be right back. He took off up the old dusty road, kicking up dust in them hills. You know, up that house is about 300 yards up that old dusty road. Stayed gone about 20 minutes, came running back down that dusty road, got down there and said, yeah, yes, sir, mister. said, I can eat that watermelon. He sat down and ate the whole thing, seeds, rind, the whole deal. And that man said, well, now, son, I'm going to give you this $10 bill. But first, got to tell me why you had to go up to that house up there to find out where you could eat this watermelon down here now. That kid said, well, mister, that was a big watermelon. I wasn't really sure I could eat it. He said, you know, we had one on the bed up there at the house about the same size, and I knew if I could eat that enough there, I could eat this one down here. <laughs> so that's kind of the way my childhood was. I didn't really get a lot of that, the, 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 some of the best stuff, you know. And 
My family was very religious. We went to a little country church out there. And when I was 13, I walked out of that Baptist church, and I got baptized in the creek out behind the church. And nothing changed in my life because I didn't change anything. And I did realize at an early age that I had a little bit of athletic skills. And I decided to work on these every time I had a chance because I felt like the only way for me to get out of the environment that I was ashamed of was by athletics. And my father was a disciplinarian in the family. And he said that all his kids were average kids. And if you just wanted to go to school, you could make C's and B's and A's. But if you were going to play any sports or you were going to do any extracurricular activities, taking time away from whatever else you, you could have been studying, then you had to make the honor roll. So to play sports, we had to make the honor roll. And I made the honor roll all the way through school, no problem. Didn't get in any big trouble in high school. Back in those days, athletes, we didn't smoke, we didn't drink, we listened to coaches and and we were dedicated to our sports, and we went on with it. Well, sure enough, when I got uh, when I graduated from high school, the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, we used to call it the Country Club of the South, but I think that might have changed a little bit. But uh, they came down and offered me a scholarship to go up there to play football and baseball. And I took off to college 200 miles away from home, really the first time I'd ever been away from home on my own. And I had some primary purposes in my life when I went up there. You see, there had never been any alcohol around my home. I'd never tasted alcohol, and I wanted to learn about drinking. You know, we heard <clears throat> a little bit from Sterling last night about this macho manism. You know, that's what we always want to be. Matter of fact, not long ago, uh, a supermarket there around our hometown, we're right outside of Memphis, Tennessee, in Horn Lake, Mississippi. We're right across the line. We're 10 minutes from the state line there, but we're in that area in Memphis. Supermarket up there in Memphis, Tennessee, ran a, a contest. They had come out with some new toilet tissue, and they wanted to name it. And they didn't know what to name it. Finally, this little seventy-year-old lady went there and said, "I tell you what to name it." I said what? I said John Wayne. I said John Wayne. Why would we name it John Wayne? She said, "Well, it's rough and tough, and it don't take crap off nobody." <laughs> so I wanted to become this macho man, and I thought when I went to college. Part of this macho man thing that I wanted to be, you know, you had to learn how to dress, and you had to learn how to go out to a nice restaurant, and you had to learn about alcohol, because I didn't know anything about it. <clears throat> so, when I got to Ole Miss, first thing I did, I got with the upperclassmen, the older, the upper football players, guys as juniors and seniors, and we got in a car, first time we had some time off. And we took off, we were 80 miles from Memphis, Tennessee, and we took off to Memphis. We was going over to West Memphis, right across the river over there into Arkansas, because they had all these joints up and down the river, and we was going over there to party. And we stopped at a liquor store. And I was a complete rookie about booze. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know the difference between beer, wine, bourbon, gin, vodka, nothing. And I kind of had a limited budget. I didn't have a lot of money. I went in there and looked around that liquor store, and finally my eyes settled on a gallon of Mogan David wine. And it fit in my budget, so I bought it. Went back out the car, Sterling, back in those days, we didn't have these old styrofoam cups. We had paper cups, and we had ice. And I took that ice and threw it in that paper cup, and I poured that wine over that, and I drank it right down. And I can tell you all tonight exactly what that wine did for me the first time I ever drank. I mean, you know, it kind of... Burned a little bit going down and kind of got down here through your throat, got down your stomach, was kind of rosy and made your fingers kind of tingle and your kind of toes kind of turned up a little bit, you know, and, and uh, you got a little flush feeling all over it. It kind of 
felt like you swallowed an umbrella and it uh, opened up on the inside of you, you know. But I put that old keen mathematical mind of mine to work. I figured one cup of that wine would do that for me. Two cups would make it twice as good. And so I drank down that second cup of wine. And I realized today, many, many years later, that all the symptoms of alcoholism was present in my life the first time I drank alcohol. Because you see, the book told me years later when I got here that men and women, it didn't say alcoholics, it says men and women, drank because they liked the effect produced by alcohol. And also, I found the definition, and I do believe the book defines alcoholism. A lot of people say, no, it doesn't define it, it just describes it. I believe for me, the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous defines alcoholism when it says simply, alcoholics are men and women who's lost the ability to control your drink. They don't say where you lost it, when you lost it, how you lost it, why you lost it, says you lost it. And the next uh, paragraph tells you about the men that lost their legs. They're not going to uh, grow new legs, neither will we ever regain control. So those two symptoms was present in my life the first time I drank alcohol. And then sometime before the end of the evening, I blacked out, I got in trouble, and I passed out. That's when I was 17 and a half years old, 30 years later. The last time I drank alcohol, I drank because I liked the effect it produced. I couldn't control the amount I put in my body once I drank alcohol. I blacked out. I got in trouble. And I passed out. So I didn't learn a whole hell of a lot in 30 years about alcohol. But I didn't come to the next day and say, well, I got to go to Alcoholic Anonymous because I'm an alcoholic. I was 17 and a half years old. Freshman in college. And I made a decision the next morning. You know, I never have been good at decisions. Matter of fact, I made a decision the night before I came up here whether I need to go to the bathroom or not. It looks like right now I made the wrong decision. But, <laughs> but I, I've never been good on decision. But I made a decision that next morning that I could drink alcohol if I only drank a certain amount. But 30 years later, I was still trying to figure out how much alcohol I could drink. But the next four years was good to us. College is probably the most carefree, fun time of your life. Of course, I realized today that I was there four years and I came out of there totally untouched by a college education. But I found out one thing. If you can play football, you don't really need to go to class. You don't really need to do all the things everybody else does. You don't need to learn anything. If you can play football on Saturday afternoon, that's what you have to do. And uh, the to school, and I'm not blaming them for anything that ever happened in my life, because almost everything happened to me up to a certain point of time in my life was good, and football was certainly a big part of it, but they, they, you know, they made it possible for me to stay eligible when I shouldn't have been eligible, they made it possible for me to perform on Saturday afternoon when I shouldn't have been out there on Saturday afternoon, but that's just the way it was back in those days. In the four years we were there, we were eligible to play varsity football three years, and we had some fine football teams at Ole Miss. As a matter of fact, uh, we went to the Sugar Bowl twice and the Gator Bowl once in those three years as a reward for having a good season. Matter of fact, my senior year, we played both ways back in those days. This is late 50s, early, well, yeah, 59. We played both ways, played offense and defense back in those days. And our offensive team, our, together as a team, in 11 ball games that year, we scored 327 points, almost 30, 30 points a game. We gave up a total 
of 21 points in 11 ball games. So we had a fine football team, and I was very fortunate. I made All-American and, and uh, All-Southeastern Conference and those kind of things. And, and uh, oh, yeah, and I dated two Miss Americas while I was at Ole Miss. Of course, that ain't got nothing to do with drinking or football. I just want y'all to know it. In 1960, my graduation year from Ole Miss, my phone started ringing. And they told me, they said, now what it is is pro football. And I had never, you know, we didn't have any professional football teams in the South. I didn't know anything about it. And I don't know what kind of TV y'all had here in West Virginia at that time, but back in those days down South, the TV reception wasn't real good. You could see some images out there on that TV screen, but it was so bad that, you know, you, you thought you were watching TV. You really wasn't. And, and, uh, I had, I'd seen a few sports on TV. It wasn't real good. And I was kind of like Andy Griffith. Some of y'all are old enough to remember Andy Griffith making this record called What It Is Is Football. And at the end of the record, he finally realized the object of the game. The object of the game was to get from one end of that cow pasture to the other without either falling down or stepping in something, you know? And that's about what I knew about pro football. But all at once, the uh, Baltimore Colts said, we drafted you. We want you to come to Baltimore and play with us. The New York team in the American Football League, and they were just starting the American Football League in 1960. And they came down there and they said, we want you, we drafted you. We want you to come up here and play in New York. So each team sent a representative to Oxford, Mississippi. And they came down there and we sat down at the table and they started piling that money up there on the table. Well, they finally got, they call it a bonus for signing your name. Hadn't nobody ever given me a bonus to sign my name before. And when they got that money up there to a thousand dollars, I signed. You see, I'd never seen a thousand dollars in one pile in my life till then. And I took off to New York City to play professional football. You know, we've had an opportunity to visit around with a lot of folks while we're here tonight. Or, I mean, this weekend. And I wish everybody was going to stay sober. But I don't really believe that's going to be the case. I wish every alcoholic in here would stay sober the rest of their life. But if you're an alcoholic here tonight, and they don't serve it as fast as you want it served in West Virginia, here at Huntington or wherever you may be from, they don't serve it as many hours as you want it served. If they don't serve it in the manner you like it served, you might ought to try New York City. <laughs> Them people up there, now they know. That little old concrete jungle up there called Manhattan, uh, it was good to me, but I'm going to tell you. They had these things called restaurants, and they were on just about every corner, and a lot of them in between them corners too. And I think to qualify to be a restaurant in New York City, you had to be able to serve... Uh, I think your menu said something like Slim Jims and crackers and booze, you know. But they knew about it. They'd sweep you out early in the morning on, you know, and uh, then they'd reopen the bar about 10 minutes later and go on with your business. But I had a good time in New York for the next 13 years. It's a life that I don't have the vocabulary and the words to get up here in front of y'all tonight and describe the life of the next 13 years that we lived in New York City. It was just unbelievable. It's just something about Standing underneath the goalpost at Shea Stadium on Sunday afternoon, being introduced as a starting right linebacker of the New York Jet football team, knowing that you're on TV down there in Mississippi, my mother's watching me and everybody else, and uh, and going down to the largest city in the world and getting in a cab and people recognizing you and wanting your autograph and going out there and, 
and uh, going to dinner and people buying you booze and food and, you know, it just uh, kind of does something for your ego, you know. We had a lot of funny things that happened in football. I mean, we had a lot of good times. You know, uh, my mother, my dad died in 1961 after I played my first year and the second year of football, he passed away. And so I, in my third year of football, I decided to have mama come up there to New York for Thanksgiving. You know, down south at Thanksgiving, we always have cornbread dressing. I'm here to tell y'all in New York, they don't have cornbread dressing at Thanksgiving. They have white bread dressing, you know, and that wasn't good enough for me. So I decided to fly mother up there. So I met her at the airplane, and she got off the plane, and she had a pan about this big around that she was going to make dressing for everybody on the team. And I said, Mama, you know, my dad had passed away by then. He was a disciplinarian, and I didn't think I'd have any trouble with my mother, but I'd been drinking quite a bit by then. My drinking had escalated some. As with all those football players, that's what we did. We drank, played football, played football, and drank, you know. And so I decided I better prepare my mother on the way out to where we live. So I said, Mama, I'm the lightest linebacker in professional football. Matter of fact, throughout the season, I have a tendency to lose weight. And the team would like for me to keep my weight up there pretty pretty substantially, you know. And I said, matter of fact, they have recommended I drink beer to keep my weight up, you know. Well, Mother didn't say too much, and by then we had had a deal with Ryan Gold Beer in New York City. They were our sponsors, and they told all the players, they said, uh, we're going to send you two cases of beer out to where you live every week. If you need any more than that, just let us know, and we'll send you more. So Mother didn't say anything, and we drove on out to where we lived, and we lived in an apartment complex. There were eight other football players that lived in that same complex. Mother and I got out of that car that afternoon, we walked in. Ryan Golden delivered 16 cases of beer and put it in my foyer. Mother took one look at that and she said, Son, how much weight they want you to gain? <laughs> one day we were playing the Chicago Bears. And everybody knows about Dick Butkus being the meanest linebacker that ever played the game. And right in the middle of the game, old Butkus looked out there at a little wide receiver from Texas, Don Maynard, and he said, Maynard. If you come back across this middle and catch another pass, I'm going to bite your head off. Maynard and that little old squeaky Texas boy said, Butkus, if you bite my head off, you'll have more brains in your stomach than you got in your head. <laughs> but we rocked along there, you know, and finally, if you remember the history of football, the leagues hated each other. And the American Football League was young, just established in 1960. The National Football League was over here, had been established in 1919, and there were two distinct leagues back in the early 60s. They hated each other, and they tried to get people to jump from one team to another, and they drafted the same player out of college, and they bid on them to get their services, and salaries started going up, and finally the leagues got smart. In 1967, they got together, they decided to play one game for the championship of professional football. And somebody coined the phrase Super Bowl. So the first Super Bowl was ever played was in January of 1967. Green Bay Packers won the National Football League Championship. Kansas City Chiefs won the American Football League Championship. They played in the first Super Bowl ever played. Green Bay beat the hell out of it. Second Super Bowl came around in January of 1968. 
Again, Green Bay won the National Football League Championship. This time, the Oakland Raiders won the American Football League Championship. They played in Super Bowl II. Again, Green Bay beat the hell out of it. So the National Football League was 2-0, and and everybody thought that the American Football League was some Mickey Mouse League. Well, in December of 1968, the New York Jets played the Oakland Raiders in Shea Stadium in New York for the championship of the American Football League and for the right to go to Super Bowl III. And we had a tough time that day. We beat the Raiders 27-23 in a real tough ball game. So we were qualified to go as American Football League champion to go to Super Bowl III. Same day that we played the Raiders, Baltimore played Cleveland in Cleveland for the National Football League championship. Baltimore beat Cleveland 34 to nothing in their home park. So the Super Bowl III was going to be the New York Jets, Baltimore Colts. All at once, all the odds makers, all the smart money, Sterling said he just paid off his bet last year. <laughs> all the smart money installed the New York Jets as 19 and a half point underdogs to the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl three. Well, I'm sure y'all know where our ego was by then, and, and I'm sure you know what our attitude was about all that point spread. We didn't even look at the point spread. You know, we knew that we kicked off on Sunday afternoon in Super Bowl III. The score is going to be zero to zero. Matter of fact, we had this young, illustrious quarterback named Joe Namath from Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, right up here by way of Alabama. He went to school down there. He was our quarterback, and he got behind a, a podium such as this, got on a podium such as this down in Miami during the week before the Super Bowl. And some heckler in the back row, Joe was receiving an award, and he was making a speech and making a talk. And... And this heckler said, oh, Namath, why don't you sit down and shut up? Baltimore's going to kick your butt on Sunday. And right off the top of his head, Joe said, no, partner, you got it wrong. The Jets are going to win the game. I guarantee it. And it became the next morning we looked at the headlines. Man, everywhere it said, New York Jets, Namath, guarantees they're going to beat Baltimore. And here we are, 19 and a half point underdogs. Well, sure enough, Sunday afternoon, we went out there and we beat Baltimore 16 to 7. We became the first American Football League team to ever win a Super Bowl. We changed the history of football because they merged the two leagues a short time later. And they never would have merged the two leagues had they not thought that both uh, leagues were equal. And things started happening in my life right away. The very next day after Super Bowl three, we went back to New York, the largest city in the world. We had a ticker tape parade down Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue, much like the New York Yankees had this year if they won the, Super, the uh, World Series. And those people in those high-rise office buildings throwing that confetti out there on us. We were in open-air convertibles. And, man, the Mayor Lindsay gave us all keys to the city, the largest city in the world. And my mind told me it don't get no better than this. I have arrived. I have proved to those people down there in Mississippi that I could make something out of myself. I could be somebody. I could make something out of my life. Sure enough, that hometown down there in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, on January the 29th of 1969, they had a Larry Grantham Day in that hometown. And they had a parade in the banquet. They honored me and my family. And again, I, my mind said, they don't get no better than this. I have arrived. Well, that was 1969, and I rocked on there, and we kept doing the drinking we was doing, and I think football might have been a power in my life at that time, enough to keep me from crossing over into alcoholism. But finally, in 1973, I was 35 years old. I had completed 13 years of pro football. 
I'd made all pro seven times, played in seven all-star games, and uh, we'd won Super Bowl three. And it became time for me to retire from pro football. I went back to that hometown where I was raised in or outside of there, where I'd been raised outside of there, where I built a home. I had a wife and two kids. And uh I got to be the town drunk in that hometown in a short period of time. Now, I'm not up here bragging about that tonight. I don't usually put that on my resume. But I have to tell you people like it was. I couldn't get a job and I couldn't keep a job. I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't pay my bills or I wouldn't pay my bills. I don't, I, but you know, alcohol was never a problem to me. It was always a solution to the problem. People didn't understand who I was. If everybody would leave me alone, everything would be alright. My life started going down really downhill just, and I, real fast, and I had nothing at all to hang on to. Finally, in that hometown, you know, the things that I accumulated during football started to disappear. Matter of fact, 1975, they took my driver's license and asked me to quit driving on their streets and highways down there. But as long as you got a Super Bowl ring, it don't really matter. Them cops down there all seemed to like football, and when they stopped me, I'd show them that Super Bowl ring, and we'd go on our way. And we didn't have to go to jail. We didn't do anything. But my life started kept going downhill, and I I didn't need a driver's license. Hell, if you got a Super Bowl ring, you don't show that to anybody. They they'll take that for identification over a driver's license anytime. So my life kept going downhill, and finally my wife of 21 years filed for divorce in that same hometown. We'd been childhood sweethearts in that in that uh, school there, and and uh, she filed. She just couldn't take it anymore. It's for her own sanity that she filed for divorce. And I know that today. She put on a divorce petition. Chronic alcoholism. Well, I'm sure y'all know what my attitude about that was since I was an active alcoholic. Hell, I might be an alcoholic, but I wasn't chronic, you know. <laughs> also, about that time, I decided it was time to move across the state line to get on up to Memphis, Tennessee. Of course, my hometown down there wasn't big enough for me. I spent all that time in the big city. And the book calls it a geographic change that we talk about, but I'm really not sure up at this point in time in my life where it was geographic or it could have been unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. There's lots of things going on in my life, and I decided to move across the state line to Memphis, Tennessee. My wife was getting that divorce, and it was time for me to move on. And I got to Memphis, Tennessee, and I found out real quick they got the dumbest cops in the town I'd ever been in in my life. They'd stop me and was drunk driving. I'd show them that Super Bowl ring and they'd say, no, we need, we need to, we need to see a driver's license. And I said, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> Finally, I figured out that about five years sober. Memphis is a basketball town. <laughs> they just don't know anything about football, you know. But my jail time became more frequent. I kept going to jail, and I couldn't do anything about it. Sure enough, when I first moved there, Piggy had told this morning about this lady that I got married to, and that marriage lasted about a year. And Well, she was a good girl. She just couldn't take a joke. You know, when they started turning the electricity off and taking the phone out and all that, she didn't understand all that stuff, so she hit the road, and that's when I got with Piggy. But my life kept going downhill. You know, and I, I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I, alcohol was still a solution to me. I, I drank because I deserved to drink. I drank because nobody that I hung out with or saw on a daily basis or any other basis 
had ever been to where I'd been and done the things I'd done. Nobody couldn't talk to me about drinking. Every now and then my mother might say, son, you ought to slow down on your drink. Sometimes mother might say, son, you ought to stop drinking. But she never told me how to stop. And I certainly didn't know anything about slowing down because once I took that first drink, it was, it was, it was adios. And I didn't understand, I didn't know what was happening, didn't really care. All I did, I drank because I hung out with people to drink. I drank because, uh, I deserved to drink. And I just, uh, my life kept going downhill. My daily deal was, you know, I'd get up in the morning and, and I'd come to and Peg would leave and go to work at two minutes to late. She lived two miles from work. And, uh, I'd look out there and see if my car got home the night before and see if it had any new dents or any blood in it because I certainly didn't remember getting home the night before. And I ascertained that it was still in the same, basically the same form I'd left it and, and I'd go in there and I always had good intentions. Now, I don't know where any of y'all ever had good intentions or not. You see, I stayed self-employed. I was a manufacturer's rep. I didn't have anything to sell. Didn't represent anybody, but I had all the machinery in place in case anybody wanted me to sell, you know. And I always had good intentions. I was going to call somebody to get something to sell, or I was going to make an appointment to go see somebody. Or I, Yeah, I had good intentions. But I'd get up in the mornings, and to get rid of those shakes that we're all so fond of, I'd have to go in there, and I'd want to drink a cup of coffee, but it, you just couldn't take the coffee by itself because you still shook. But if you could find some way to pour some alcohol in there, you quit shaking. Yeah, I quit shaking even before I got it to my lips. But I could drink it down, and after two or three of that, I'd get that vodka out, or, and I'd be ready and going, and, and I was ready for the day. And then it was going to be tomorrow I was going to do all these good things that I was going to, I always had these intentions about doing. And I always wound up drunk. I was a daily drunk. And uh, I, I, I always conned and manipulated and got my way to, to where I always had plenty to drink. I never ran out of booze. And I just drank. That's just what I did. I drove a lot, too. I was a moving around drunk, and that's the reason the cops stayed there me quite a bit. I got so paranoid about it, I really thought that every time I left the house, they were waiting around the corner to pick me up in Memphis, Tennessee. It ain't but a million people there, but they were picking on me. And I'm certainly we know that wasn't the way it was. But finally, on Memorial Day weekend of 1986, my sobriety date's May the 25th of 1986, on May the 24th, I was coming down one of the large streets there in Memphis, and I was drunk as usual. Peggy had left on Friday, gone over to her folks. I didn't show up, so I didn't go with her. And Saturday, I was drunk. Saturday afternoon, about 7 o'clock. Don't ask me how long I'd been drunk this particular time. It, it was just a period of time. That's all. I don't know. Days, weeks, whatever. Now, I was coming down one of the big streets there. Winchester Avenue. And you know, Y'all probably think that football players, when they come out of college, all they can do is play pro football or something like that. You know, we have a choice to make when we come out of college. Sometimes some of us have to think about whether we're going into uh, brain surgery, rocket scientry, or pro football, you know. Because, you know, guys are really sharp. And, and uh matter of fact, two of them was coming home from New York one time. They were driving back to Texas after football season. And so the guy that owned the car drove for a while, and he got tired, and he got in the back seat. All at once, they hit Ohio, and they're coming through Ohio, and old Curly's in the back seat asleep. Finally, he wakes up, and he says, Berlin, where are we? Berlin said, man, I don't know. He said, well, heck, you're driving. You haven't got us lost, have you? He said, I don't know where we are. I, said, I saw a sign back there a while ago that said, toodly-doo. 
He said, Tootley do, Curly got all messed up, got his wife to sleep out of his eyes, jumped over in the front seat, man, he said, you got us lost, we got to find out where we are, and all at once he saw a sign that said, Toledo, Ohio, five miles. <laughs> so you see, when we come out of college, we have a choice, and I knew I was pretty brilliant, and we was coming down that street there in Memphis, Tennessee, and I knew it was a sign there that said, no left turn. And this guy in a car, four cars in front of me, had his blinker on, and he was trying to make a left turn. And I knew he was breaking the law. So everybody else stopped, and I decided not to stop. It was raining a little bit, but I don't think that had anything to do with it. And I was in one of them drunk cars. I don't know what y'all call them up here, but I'll describe mine to you. It was that car that Peggy went and got refinanced for. I think the bank paid her, or I don't know how it worked, but it, it, it was one of them drunk cars that, it's kind of a basic eight-year-old Buick, but it had a, it, the body was kind of blue, and it had a green fender over on this side, you know, and a red fender up here, and you'd use bailing wire, you know, to tie down the trunk and the hood to keep it from flying up when you're in motion, you know. About a hundred-dollar car, that's what I was in, and, and uh, I had that five-car pilot, and you know, I mean, if you hadn't, if you hadn't been to jail many times, just keep doing what you're doing. Cause going to jail gets easier. The more you go, the easier it is. You learn the ropes and you, you understand it and the fear of what's going to happen when you get there is not nearly about as bad. So I was the fifth car in the fourth, in that five car pileup and four cars in front of me and the cops came and, and I showed them that Super Bowl ring and they said, no, nah, we better see a driver's license. Told them didn't have one. They said, well, we want to give you this test. And I said, no, I don't believe I do well on tests. I ain't going to do that. So they took me down to Shelby County Drunk Tank one more time. And I'd been there before. And like I said, if you hadn't, just keep doing what you're doing and keep going to jail because it gets easier. I knew the ropes. It wasn't no big deal. I'd been there many, many times before. And I can't tell you tonight how many times I'd been there. But they uh, took my picture and fingerprinted me and got me on in there and put me in a drunk tank where they always did. Now, the drunk tank in Memphis, Tennessee, in Shelby County is a round kind of a cell holding tank. It'll hold about 50, 100 people. Got a big old concrete seat like this. By the way, this table goes all the way around there. And it was early enough. And Peggy talked about that clock she was watching over there in Arkansas at that time when she turned loose and let God. She let go and let God. That was 7 o'clock. Well, my arrest report read, read 7.20. So you see God moves pretty fast when he's in a hurry when he needs to get this drunk sober. And, uh, but anyway, they, that, <clears throat> that old holding tank there, they had a big old seat and, and, uh, it was early enough in the evening and I didn't have to call and make a reservation. You know, you don't have to do that. It's not like the Holiday Inn or anything. If they got you down there, they got a place for you and they'll, they'll usually use it and they put me in there. Got my picture took, fingerprints, got on in there. And I grabbed me about five or six feet of that thing and laid down and passed out. Well, you know, when you drink the way I do, you got to get your rest anywhere you can. So I passed out. Sometime early morning hours, next morning I came to. And I was really attracted to those people on the other side of that cell. There was about five or six men sitting over there talking in a group circle. And I'd run out of cigarettes the night before, and I'm a heavy smoker, and they were smoking. So I was really attracted to those people, and I decided to go over there and talk to them and get me some cigarettes, and uh, finally I decided I better tell them how dumb the cops were. Because they had an X 
National Football League linebacker in jail. And that ain't usually where we hang out, you know. And as soon as the cops found out who they had, they probably just going to let me go. Then I thought, well, I might ought to help these guys with their life. Because they were in jail. Didn't dawn on me that I was there with them. You know, I was going to help them straighten their life out. I went over there and started talking to these people. And sure enough, I told them all about me and how dumb the cops were. And after a while, I gave out a thing to talk about me. And I started talking about them. And they said, we're in here for public drunk. We we live on the streets of whatever town we happen to be in. You know, we drink, uh, we work long enough or steal enough to get a bottle, and we drink and we go to jail. Or we pass out on the doorways or abandoned cars and wherever we happen to be. And that's all we want to do with our life. That's it. But said, we're going to have to leave Memphis, Tennessee, because the cops here has got too tough on public drunk. And I said, well, where do we all go? And they said, well, we're going to Little Rock, Arkansas. And I said, how will you get there? And they said, oh, we're going to hitchhike. And I said, how long will it take you? And they said, oh, 10 days, two weeks. And I don't know what triggered my mind that morning after I talked to those people, but I went back over there and I sat down on that seat that I'd slept on the night before. And those people told me that what they were doing is their choice for their life. And, of course, I asked myself that question. Was my life going the way I would choose for it to go? And, of course, the answer was no. But I sat there on that concrete seat. And my life played a VCR tape. and I mean, my eyes played a VCR tape or my mind did right in front of my eyes. And I saw where I was as a child. I saw all the hopes and ambitions and dreams. I saw that uh, all the, when I got to college, I totally misused the college education. I had been introduced to alcohol. I, alcohol had been a big part of my life all the way through uh, pro football. And I saw how I'd misused everything, every opportunity I'd had in pro football, except we had reached that one Super Bowl, and and I never was honest and straightforward about uh, what was going on in my life, even when I was playing football. I was one of those big people that could have, I could perform after being out all night and drinking and carrying on, and you know, time after time after time, when we'd be in Miami to play the Dolphins, or we'd be in Oakland to play, play the Raiders. We'd go in for bed check at 11 o'clock on Saturday night. We had to be there ready to go by 1 o'clock on Sunday. And uh, they'd come around, check your room, make sure everybody was all right. And the minute the coaches left, I hit the road. I'd go out and I'd stay out all night long. And, I'd, you know, it's it just the insanity of this thing. How can you jeopardize a job that you profess out of your mouth to dearly love to do and jeopardize it by going out and hanging out all night and showing back up about the time everybody else came in from church the next morning on Sunday morning because you fell in with them. The coaches didn't know you'd been out all night. And uh, then you'd go out there and play football on Sunday afternoon. And I had some success in football, but I, it often, sometimes I have wondered. I hadn't worried about it. I hadn't been obsessed with it. I've wondered what my career would have been like had I given it 100%. Nobody, I don't ever know. I never will know. And it's, it's sad. But my life played before my eyes like a VCR tape that morning. And then for the first time in my life, I saw what had happened to me since I'd retired from football. And for the first time in my life, I knew that alcohol was at the root of my problems. I knew I couldn't drink alcohol anymore. But I knew left my own devices I was going to drink alcohol. Because I'd gotten out of jail many, many times before, and I'd always drank. I knew that alcohol had abandoned me, and you know, I believe in my heart today that every drunk has a moment of clarity in his life. 
I believe every drunk has opportunity to have a moment of truth about who he is and what he is. It's what you do with that moment of truth, that moment of clarity, that determines whether you'll get sober or not. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter. When you know that alcohol won't work for you anymore, it don't matter whether you're drinking champagne or or Budweiser beer or Crown Royal or Rub-A-Dub. It don't matter where you're living in West Virginia or you're living in Memphis, Tennessee. It doesn't matter. When you find out alcohol doesn't work for you anymore and you're as hopeless and helpless as I was that morning, I, I know you'll do what I did. I got out of my knees in that jail cell and I said, God, help me. It's the only prayer that I'd ever, only sincere prayer I'd ever said in this adult. We'd always said the Lord's Prayer before and after every football game I'd ever played in. I'd always said those jailhouse prayers, oh God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll never do it again. I never had any sincerity. This is the first time in my adult life I'd ever prayed a sincere prayer. And I said, God help me. Knowing my grandiose ideas about life, I probably expected God to zap that cell door with lightning and let me walk out of there a free man. Didn't do that. I got a bail bondsman like everybody else. And I got out and I went home and I told Peggy, I said, baby, I think I need some help. I don't think I can handle this by myself. And Peggy said those words. She said, Larry, if you need help, you'll find it. You can find it. The phone book's full of people that can help you, but I can't help you. And isn't that the way it is? See, Peggy's not an alcoholic. In her infinite wisdom or some manner, some she knew what to tell me. She knew to tell me that she couldn't help me. An Alcoholic Anonymous program was formed in 1935 by one drunk sitting down talking to another drunk. And that's the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. She couldn't help me because she's not a drunk. We expect sometime a lot more out of Alcoholic Anonymous. But one drunk sharing with another drunk, isn't that enough? Isn't that what the program's all about? She went on to, uh, we went on to bed that night and I had a pretty bad night. I didn't, uh, I didn't drink. I don't know where I would have drank. If there's anything in the house. I don't even know where there's anything in the house or not. I never, I, I don't remember looking. I don't remember searching. I don't remember thinking about it. I thought about a lot of other things that night because I stayed awake all night. I had the sweats and the, and the fever and all this other stuff that comes with trying to get off alcohol, but I didn't drink. Peggy got up as she usually does and went to work the next morning. I called her at work and I said, I don't guess you understood me. You know, I need some help. You see, all my adult life, all I had to do was flick them fingers when I got in trouble and somebody came to my rescue. Mainly because I could play football. But at that time, I'd used up everything and everybody in my life. She asked him about getting me out of jail. And they said, no, you get him out. We got him out last time. I'd used up all the football, New York Jet football organization. I'd used up all the politicians in the state of Mississippi to get me out of trouble because I knew them all from going to school with them or knowing who they were or, or whatever. And I'd used up everything and everybody around me. And as long as if there had been one person there and I could snap my fingers and they could have gotten me out of trouble, y'all would have a different speaker here before you tonight. But there was nobody left. And Peggy told me that well, she went on to work. And I called her and she said those same words. And all at once my mind played a trick on me. Now, I don't know what you do, what y'all do if you're drinking. And they put a ad on TV about not drinking or about going through some kind of place to get sober. 
I always fast forward to another station. You know, I didn't ever watch any of those commercials. I didn't want to go to another place. I had no plans to quit drinking, so it didn't really matter. But that Monday morning, I knew the number, the phone number, of a treatment facility in Brinkley, Arkansas. Now, we're in Memphis, 70, 70 to 75 miles over there. I'd never been to Brinkley, Arkansas in my life. But I knew that phone number as well as I knew my name. And I called that phone number. And I got a recovering alcoholic on the other end of the phone, the one that Peggy talked about this morning, this guy named Larry G. And he said, if you'll hang on to 2.30 this afternoon, I'll be in your living room and bring somebody else with me, another alcoholic, recovering alcoholic. And sure enough, I held on to 2.30 that afternoon, and Peggy came home from work, and they came in my ho- in our house. And in a short period of time, they pissed me off. <laughs> you see, I had called them. They started telling me about how they drank. I didn't give a damn how they drank. I wanted to tell them my problems. I had called them to come take care of me. But after a while, they started talking about how they stay sober. And I finally, in this old thick mind of mine, I finally realized they knew about drinking, and I knew about drinking. They knew about staying sober, and I didn't know the first thing about staying sober. And I was attracted to those people. And that's what the book says. This is a program of attraction rather than promotion. We don't have to promote alcoholic anonymous. I, followed, I went back with those people back over to Brinkley, Arkansas. And come to find out, it was a two-week, 14-day detox program was all it was. Except they uh, talked about the book, made us read the book, study the book. When we, wasn't, when we were laying around getting, getting that alcohol out of our system and putting a little bit back to keep us from dying and all that stuff. But we talked about the book, we saw some tapes on the book, and we talked, Joe and Charlie, we listened to those tapes, and we did all this stuff about the book. That's all they talked about. Oh, except we had, uh, I don't know, Kizzy's back. Kizzy, I'm going to excuse you from this part. Because they had a psychiatrist over there we had to see every day. I, you know, being as smart as I am, I always had psychiatry up there pretty close to witchcraft. And I'd go in David's office every day, and he'd say, Larry, how you doing? I'd say, fine, David, how you doing? I'd, he'd say, fine. I'd, he'd say, tell me about your childhood. And I'd say, I had a happy childhood. We'd sit and look at each other for about 20 minutes, and he'd say, get the hell out of my office. Now, the reason my attitude was this bad about psychiatry, and I know what it is today. You see, every year we went back to football and went back to New York in July, got ready for training camp, got to prepare ourselves for the year, we had to go to the team psychiatrist and have some sessions with him because we had to prove to him that we hadn't become killers from the year before. All they want you to do is cripple them in pro football. They don't want you to kill anybody. It'd be pretty sad on Monday morning if you picked up your local paper and said eight National Football League quarterbacks killed in the line of duty yesterday. I don't think the American public would like that, so they wanted us to cripple them up. And put them in a hospital, but they didn't want anybody to get killed. So you had to go to that psychiatrist, and you had to convince him that you weren't a killer, you're just a crippler. And for 13 years, I'd been able to do that. I could I could convince him I could cripple up the other team and go on about my business, although I wanted to rip their heart out right through their mouth, you know, most of the time. But I convinced him anyway. And so I didn't know anything about it, and I certainly didn't have much for it. And he sent me right down, well, he didn't send me anywhere. He told me to get out of his office. And I went right down the hall to this counselor's office that Peggy talked about today, this big black man named Larry G. 
and he's as close as any anybody I've ever been around in my life today. He and I are just unbelievably close. Because he told me the truth about Alcoholic Anonymous. He told me the truth about this recovery. He told me this was a big book, a planned program of recovery. That is a textbook. You don't just read this story and put it up on the shelf and say, man, that's a great story. I'd learned one thing in college or high school or somewhere that a textbook has to be studied. And I don't know why here at Alcoholic Anonymous we say turn to chapter 5 and find out how it works. If you went to math class and you hadn't had any background in math, you didn't know anything about adding and subtraction, and they said turn to chapter 5, we're going to do long division today, I expect you'd be lost. But here in Alcoholic Anonymous we say turn to chapter 5 and find out how it works. I don't believe that you can find out how it works if you hadn't read and studied those first four chapters, including the doctor's opinion. He told me that this is a planned program of recovery. There are certain things I was going to have to do, and he didn't mention any suggestions. He says, these are directions to sobriety. He said, you're going to have to get a group, home group, so they'll know a little about you. And you're going to have to get active in your home group. You're going to have to get involved. He said, you know, when you drank, I bet you didn't just go in a bar and watch everybody else drink. I bet you just didn't buy a bottle and put it up on the shelf and look at it. So I bet you got involved in your drinking. Well, you're going to have to get involved in your recovery. He said, you're going to have to read and study the book. You're going to have to get get involved in a home group. you got to get a sponsor. You're going to have to get a sponsor that you can tell your innermost, uh, your fourth step and all your innermost secrets to. Because secrets will get you drunk. And then he said, you're going to have to not drink. I said, hell, everybody knows that. You're going to get sober. And he said, well, evidently you didn't for a long time. (laughs) So I got out of there in two weeks, and I went back to Memphis, Tennessee. And there's an area over there in Memphis called Whitehaven, and I fell in with a bunch of people that showed me the way to sobriety, led me to sobriety, loved me to sobriety. Some places they call them old-timers. They told me promptly when I got there, and I, I've been around AA now for, well, about 11 years last weekend. And I've never seen a position like this since then. But they told me that I could be their football group expert. And when they got ready to talk about football, they'd call on me. Other than that, sit over there and shut up. I had a lot of things I need to tell those folks, but I went there a long time and they ain't never got ready to talk about football, so. And then of all things, they appointed me a sponsor. I don't really recommend it. Mine has worked out okay. I thought at first it was what every macho football player needs. They appointed me a little old wholesale flower man about that tall. And he had all them brilliant sayings. Like live and let live. Like how important is it? But at that time, he'd been sober 12 years. Today, he's coming up on 24. He's been the only sponsor I've ever had. He also told me the truth about AA, about alcoholic anonymous. He told me where the answers were to all life's problems. I have the luxury and have had the luxury for some time to go down in front of his desk on a daily basis and sit in front of his desk and talk AA to him. And he talks, he, he tells me about my life. The only thing about it early on, you know, we know that we got a thinking process. Something wrong up here. We got a problem with that thinking process. 
because once we get the alcohol out of our system, you know, we don't, all we need to know is we don't drink no alcohol. And he said, well, after that, your thinking's what gets you. And he says, matter of fact, I'll do your thinking for you for the first year of your sobriety. Every major decision, he said, well, I'll do your thinking for you. And I said, now, Jerry, that's, that's not in the big book. I can't find it in the big book. He said, well, the way we look at it, if I do your thinking for you, at least a total idiot won't be in charge of your life. I said, oh, okay. Then all at once, they started talking about these fourth and fifth steps, you know. And I said, you know, Super Bowl ring. They said, no, you got to do that fourth and fifth step. And I did those with my sponsor. And I'll be forever grateful for that. You see, we have formed a bond that uh, I've never had with another human being in my life. Just through this sponsorship thing. And you know, today, Alcoholic Anonymous, I, I can never praise Alcoholic Anonymous enough. I can never praise or talk about the amount of love that flows in this room right here tonight. That's just no way. I had some amends I had to make. I had some pretty troublesome amends to me. After two years of being sober, through my sponsor and other people's suggestions, I had to go to Peggy and say, Peggy, you know, I know I hadn't been much of a husband for two years, but I even have been sober. All I did was overdose on AA for the first two years. I ran from here to there to over here and how she put up with it, I don't know. She talked about Sean as being our aftercare. I mean, they had the worst coffee in Memphis. I don't know about other places, but they, we drank enough of that coffee to float this room in. And and we'd buy some cake every now and then if we had some, because I didn't get a job right away. It finally took my sponsor pointing out to me that I was looking for a position. I really wasn't looking for a job. And I needed to take some whatever came available. But uh we'd go to these aftercare meetings. We'd sit there and pig and stay up till 12, 1 o'clock. Whenever Sean is closed, that's when we'd leave. And then she'd get up the next morning to go to go to work and be there by eight o'clock. And I'd get up on and go to get on the phone whenever I got ready to and call my AA buddies. We'd talk AA because I was still a salesman, still didn't have anything to sell. But if you stay self-employed, you still don't get fired even if you're sober, you know. And, but all at once, I did what was put in front of me, and I went to work for a guy out of Rogers, Arkansas, in selling, and uh, I bought the business from him three years ago. And I am a manufacturer rep today, and I got a whole bunch of stuff to sell, and and uh, our life goes pretty good. But I, not only that amends to Piggy I had to make after two years of being sober. People had told me, I and, and I went and I told her, I said, I don't know anything about relationships. But from this day forward, I'm willing to work at it. I'm willing to make a commitment right now, if you're willing. And you know, today, Peg is the best friend i got in the world. She knows all my secrets. I don't have anything that's going to jump up and bite me from the past or the present and hope for the future. Because she knows as much about me as any human being has ever known on the face of this earth. And she's my best friend. She's my, she's grandmother. we got eight grandkids. And, uh, she, we, we're just the best of friends. But she's my wife too, you know. She takes my inventory too, you know. But she's allowed to do that. But then I had this uh, brother down in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and he's he was born club-footed. And when he said when we say club-footed, his hip foot was turned around backwards, and he didn't have any Achilles, and his toes were turned where his 
Achilles should have been when he was born. Through a series of operations, starting when he was like six weeks old, they started breaking his foot and breaking it, turning it around. And finally, they turned it around right, and his toes were in the right place. And they made it, they built him an Achilles tendon. And he consequently had to keep his leg in a cast or braces or whatever for about six or eight years of his life, his early life. So one leg smaller than the other leg. But when he got up in high school, he got to be an athlete, and he was a pitcher in baseball. He played football. And when I was in my glory years at Ole Miss, and back in those days when I was up there, they had unlimited scholarships. And I demanded that the University of Mississippi give my younger brother a scholarship when he came out of school. And they gave him a scholarship, but he didn't have the type of scholarship I had. He didn't have a total free ride. He had to work behind the, the he had to live behind the gymnasium, and he had to work in the cafeteria serving line. And and uh, they didn't get his books and tuition all paid for like I did. But he made it through college, and he studied accounting, and he got to be a CPA, and he was he did he's done real well in life. But you see, when I got when the, in the in the middle of my drunkenness. I sold him on a bill of goods, and he and I put some money in. He put most of it in, and we got in this business thing and uh, lost a lot of money. Most of it was his. And when I got sober, and I did that four step and did that writing down on that stuff, showed it to my sponsor. My sponsor said, what are you going to do about your brother? And I said, well, you know, uh, without me, he couldn't have got that college education. That's where it was locked up in his mind up here. I was responsible for him getting his college education. And he said, my sponsor said, no, it's got to be bothering you. You wouldn't have written it down on this piece of paper. You're going to have to make the proper amends to your brother. You see, my sponsor knew the value of that. Of that. Today, I can go to any family reunion. I can hold my head up because I got in the car and went down to Vicksburg, Mississippi, and I talked to my brother about it and made the financial amends. You see, the book says direct amends. And it says complete amends. Direct amends to me means face-to-face. Complete amends means if you owe a man $100, you pay him $100 or whatever interest he might have, you might have to pay because you can't pay him $99 and call it slick. Our life today has just been an unbelievable experience. Three years ago, Pig and I were invited to do a conference down in Yazoo City, Mississippi. All at once, after we took this conference somewhere close to six months or eight months or a year in advance, all at once the New York Jets called me. They said, we're going to have a reunion in New York that same weekend. Well, I kind of squirreled around there, you know. I was trying to get out of this commitment. My sponsor told me I couldn't. And finally, anyway, we called down and I was scheduled to do the deal on Friday night. And it, I checked the airline reservations. Sure enough, I could leave Jackson, Mississippi which is about 45 miles from Yazoo City. I could leave there Saturday morning and fly to New York. But Peggy was speaking Saturday afternoon, and she decided she'd made a commitment she was going through with it. I've got grandkids that live right outside of Jackson, Mississippi. My, my, at the time, he was uh, 10 years old. My 10-year-old grandson met me at that plane on Saturday morning, and he and I went to New York for the weekend. I'm going to tell you, my daughter wouldn't let me out of that city with that kid when I was drinking. But she put that kid in my hands to go to New York City for the weekend. I had the privilege of being an honorary captain that weekend. Five minutes before kickoff was out there for the coin toss. And I had that 10-year-old grandson on the sideline right there uh, patting everybody on the butt like he was going to play football with them that day. <laughs> His eyes were about that big around when he looked up in those Meadowlands Stadium and they had a, sold, a full house, sold-out crowd. 
his eyes. I got pictures of him on that sideline, his eyes about that big around. You know, you just can't stand to be much closer to God than that. That's just, it, it's the greatest thrill I've ever had in life. We've had a lot of good things happen to us. And you know, I'm not going to bore y'all with all of them. Because you see, these old timers, when I got here, they told me that, that we would be restored to pride and dignity. They told me that the best days of my life lie ahead of me. And I'm so glad they told me. You see, that word, that the promises we read in a lot of our meetings, says a new freedom and a new happiness. And I'm so glad they put new on that. You see, that counselor over in that treatment, that uh, detox place I went through, told me one other thing. He said, you're going to have to surrender to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic. And I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know anything about surrendering. I didn't know that the book at that time said that surrender is the first step in recovery. You see, I thought I was a self-made man. I pulled myself up and gone to college and left that town down there and gone off the big city and done all those things. And I was a self-made man. I had never surrendered to anything or anybody. Matter of fact, I had never got much help from anybody or anything. Any outside help. So I didn't know anything about surrender. Sometime on Sunday afternoon when we were up there with the Jets, they'd shoot that gun, the game would be over with, and we'd be behind 54 to 10. And we'd go in the locker room, we'd talk about, well, we just run out of time. <laughs> Hell, if we hadn't run out of time, it'd have been 100 to 10, you know, but we didn't surrender. <laughs> we couldn't surrender. We had to play the very next week. So I didn't know anything about surrender. And this guy told me, he said, you may need to compare it to something that happened in your life. And I couldn't come up with anything that I'd ever surrendered to. And finally I realized there was one time in my life I'd surrendered. The Miami Dolphins had this fullback named Larry Zonka. He's from over here at Ohio somewhere, went to school up in Syracuse. He played fullback with Miami, and his number was number 39 on his jersey. If you don't believe it, I'll show it to you, where he tattooed it on my chest, where he ran over me so many times. He was listed in the program at 235 pounds, but I know his right leg weighed 235 pounds. I don't know what his total body weight was. But I was a linebacker, and he was a fullback, and every time he got the ball, I had to tackle him, and every time I tackled him, I got hurt. Finally, in 1971, went to an all-star game in Houston, Texas. Larry Zonka was picked to play for the East team, and I was picked to play for the East team. And we were out there, and we were going to work out all week and get ready and play the game on the following Sunday. And all at once, we got to be roommates. And we got in the same hotel together, same hotel room, for a week. And we, and we chased women and played cars and drank all week and had a heck of a time. And finally, at the end of the week, I came to the conclusion that Larry Zonka was just a good, tough football player, just a hell of a guy. So he flew his wife and kids out there to Houston, Texas, and I flew my wife and kids out there, and they sat in the stands together, and they got to be friends. So the very next year, we're playing the Dolphins about September down in the regular season game down in the Orange Bowl. All at once, old Greasy's a quarterback from up here at Purdue, and he goes back to pass. And Les Anka comes out on a little circle pattern out on my side. My old defensive end named Berlin Biggs was six seven. He had his hands up real high, and he was in there on top of Greasy. And Greasy's going to loop the ball up over his hands and get it out there to Zonka. And see, they call it throwing out of a well. And old Zonka was out there, and I was back there 15 yards in the zone defense. He don't even know I'm on the football field. He's looking back over like this to catch this pass over the back of his head there. And I was going to tattoo his butt. 
It's going to be payback time for all the times he's run over me and hurt me because I got him totally defenseless. I come and hit on him with a 15-yard running start. I got there just as the ball touched his hands. Hit him right there with that helmet as hard as I've ever, ever hit a human being in my life. And we fell down in the pile up over here and the ball fell off over there. And I want to tell you all I was hurting from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. But I had given him my best shot. That's all I had. I didn't have anything better than that. That was it. And I've done that before in pro football. When you catch them that way, they usually come get them on a stretcher. So I kind of looked up to see where that stretcher was coming from. I didn't see no stretcher. I felt that moving, that pile up there by me, and I heard this voice say, Larry, how's your wife and family? <laughs> I surrendered to Larry Zonka right there. If he came in that door right there, I'd make y'all a new door right over here. Because every time I fooled with Larry Zonka, I was the one that got hurt. And isn't that the way it is with alcohol? We don't ever hurt alcohol. And my book tells me that we're going to have to surrender to our innermost self, that we're alcoholics and we can't drink alcohol. And that's the first step in in recovery. There was a good friend of mine that passed away a year ago, March. The man's name was Mr. Franklin Williams. He was from down at uh, Olive Branch, Mississippi. He called himself the Pope of Alcoholic Anonymous from Olive Branch. He meant a lot to me. He'd been sober. He would have been sober 40 years had he not passed away in March. He'd have been sober 40 years in October and November, right around that part of time. Mr. Franklin always closed his talks with this thing called his football story. And he always said something like this. Well, I'm going to tell you my football story now. It really ain't much of a story, but I kind of like the way I tell it. And I ain't heard it today. So I'm going to tell it. And Mr. Franklin always told it. But I have to read it. And it's called The Rules of the Game. And I believe it's my God talking to me. And he said, Son, I'm giving you the ball. And I'm naming you the quarterback for your team in the game of life. Now I'm your coach. So I'm going to give it to you straight. There's only one schedule to play. And it lasts all your life, but it consists of only one game. Now, it's long with no timeouts and no substitutions. You play the whole game all your life. Now, you're going to have a great backfield. You'll be the quarterback, and you'll be calling the signals. But you'll have three other fellows in the backfield which have great reputations. They are named Faith, Hope, and Charity. You work behind a truly powerful line. In the end, it consists of honesty, loyalty, devotion to duty, self-respect, sturdy cleanliness, good behavior, and courage. Now, the goalpost is the gates of heaven. God is the referee and sole official. He makes all the rules, and there is no appeal from them. There are ten additional rules. You will know them as the Ten Commandments, and you play them strictly in accordance with your own spiritual experience. There's also an important ground rule, and it is, as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Now, son, here's the ball. It's your immortal soul. 
Hold on to it. Get in there and play ball. I love all of you. We've had a tremendous time this weekend. Thank y'all.